Good evening. Uh, that woke you up, didn't it? Okay, all right. <laughs> Welcome to Upbeat Live. I'm Alan Chapman. Uh, you know, this is a big year for Beethoven. He's turning two, you know this, turning 250. December 16th, you got a lot of time to think about what the present's going to be. iTunes gift card, who knows, who knows. Earpods, no, no, forget the earpods. Anyway, uh, terrible, terrible. But anyway, uh, Given that it's the Beethoven 250th year, given that it's a Beethoven concert, I was inspired to talk about Beethoven tonight. And, and not just about, thank you so much, and I appreciate that. Um, I thought I would begin with some words from a musicologist named Jeffrey Dane. He says, we live in an era where some amazing things are often taken for granted. Reactions depend not only on individual upbringing and circumstances, but also on location. Differences in national outlooks do exist, and what's significant in one country may be of little impact in another. In the USA, he says, the mention of George Washington's name will more often than not prompt only a disinterested shrug of the shoulders. This is not so in Vienna when Beethoven's name is spoken, and where even now, incredibly, some remnants of his personality still remain. He left a deep mark. With several museums devoted to him, some of which contain his personal effects, there exist in and around Vienna more sites associated with Beethoven than with any other composer who graced the city. Despite the passing of all these years, residual effects of his presence still exist in the city and in the outlying areas he frequented. Indicative of the regard in which he still held there so long after his death is that the very mention of his name, even today, prompts a certain intangible but unmistakable posture, even from store owners and postal clerks, which bespeaks a palpable degree of reverence. The atmosphere may be impossible to define and difficult to explain, but it's very easy to recognize. Now, there's no question that Beethoven has an aura, if any composer ever did. Uh, in 1987, a book came out called The Changing Image of Beethoven, and the author of that book explores the making of this mythical image both during his lifetime and after his death. And that leads me to a little exercise. I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes for a moment and picture Beethoven in your mind. Close your eyes and picture Beethoven. Okay, open your eyes. Now, I'm thinking that perhaps you pictured him with a very intense look in his eyes and the wild mat of hair, uh, an inner torment that's visible on the outside, however you want to describe it. That's what we generally think of when we think of Beethoven. In the same way, if I ask you to picture George Washington, it's probably going to be that portrait by, if it's not a dollar bill, it's going to be that portrait by Gilbert Stewart, which I remember that hung on the wall next to the clock in Clinton Elementary School in Poughkeepsie, New York. The kind of clock that clicked off the minutes one by one and slowed down to a crawl when three o'clock approached. But I remember looking at the picture of George Washington and thinking, among other things, why didn't he finish it? And number two, of course, that's what George Washington looks like. And when you encounter another painting of George Washington, it seems wrong, because that's what he looks like. And when you encounter another painting of Beethoven and you can find them, you might think that's wrong, because that's not what he looks like. So why is it that we have this standard image of Beethoven? It's because of a new printing process that emerged in his day, which was called lithography, still with us. Uh, and that allowed this particular likeness to be widely disseminated. Well, in 1825, a music critic met him, and he was disappointed by the disparity between the portrait and what he actually looked like. 
And this is what the critic says. He says, there was nothing that expressed that tempestuous, unshackled quality which has been lent to his physiognomy in order to bring it into conformity with his works. In other words, the guy who painted him decided to paint him so he would look like the guy who wrote that music. And that's the Beethoven that we picture. Well, a little background now, historical, biographical background. 1792. That would have been the year that Beethoven turned 22. Uh, he was very eager to get out of his hometown of Bonn, Germany, not only because he wanted to advance his career, but because there was a flood of refugees coming there because of the war with France. His relocation to Vienna was made possible by the elector of Bonn, Maximilian Franz. The electors were very high-positioned people. And he not only you know, wished him well, he offered to pay for the trip and also contribute toward his living expenses when he got to Vienna. And when he left, his friends and his patrons made their inscriptions in a little souvenir album. And the most famous entry was made by his longtime friend, Count Waldstein, the guy to whom, among other things, the very dramatic Waldstein Sonata would later be dedicated. And this is what he wrote, Count Waldstein to Beethoven. You are going to Vienna in fulfillment of your long frustrated wishes. The genius of Mozart, who had passed away the year before, the genius of Mozart is still mourning and weeping over the death of her pupil. She found a refuge but no occupation with the inexhaustible Haydn. Though through him, she wishes once more to form a union with another. With the help of assiduous labor, you shall receive Mozart's spirit from the hands of Haydn. Now, the part that's usually quoted is just the tail end. You will receive Mozart's spirit from the hands of Haydn. But if you go back earlier, you realize that he's also sort of putting down Haydn. Mozart's spirit is temporarily hanging out in Haydn, looking for a really better place to live, and that's going to be you. And when Beethoven got to Vienna, he did study some uh, with Haydn although the studies wouldn't amount to much. He also continued work on the Opus I piano trios, which were premiered about a year later. Uh, and when they were, Haydn was present. He actually recommended that one of them be withheld from publication. It was a little too advanced for Haydn's conservative taste. Now, Beethoven's early success in Vienna came from his piano playing, but at first you would only be able to hear it in private circles. Uh, one of the piano virtuosi who was active in Vienna at the time heard young Beethoven when he first arrived, and this was his report. He is no man. He's a devil. He will play me and all of us to death and how he improvises. Now, I wanted to play a recording of Beethoven improvising. Uh, the last one on eBay was grabbed up before I could get in on it. But what you have when you, when you deal with some of the music that is written down, you clearly have the essence of what improvisation might have been, especially when you have a set of variations, whether it's a Mozart or a Bach or a, or a Beethoven or, or an Oscar Peterson, what you have is taking a familiar tune and running it through your musical imagination and letting us hear the results. That's what variations actually are. So what I do have is a favorite example of mine of Beethoven at the keyboard, a set of variations you may not be familiar with, uh, variations though on a tune that you most likely are familiar with.
Now, Beethoven knew the tune as God Save the King. Uh, he composed his set of variations in 1803. That was the same year as the Eroica Symphony. Uh, and I'm going to give you a quick tour of what Beethoven does, starting with a gently ornamented first variation. is in the counterpoint in the second variation. surprises in the third variation. some of his piano sonatas in the fourth variation. Little melancholy in the fifth variation. trumpets in the sixth. you're going to have a big finish.
So that's what you might have heard if you had access to the uh, fashionable circles of Vienna. You might have heard him improvising in such a fashion. Uh, it would take more than two years for the big move to the concert hall, out of the private venues into public view. That came in March of 1795 with a concert featuring the premiere of his piano concerto number two. Why number two and not number one, I will tell you in a moment. But here's a little of the opening orchestral exposition, which is typical for a concerto. Uh, and then that will fade out and I will bring up the soloist first entrance. Piano concerto number two. Now, if you're thinking, why couldn't they get a better piano for this recording? What I've chosen to do is play uh, selections from recordings made by a very fine pianist and scholar named Robert Levin, who in recording these with a period instrument orchestra, sought to match the piano to what Beethoven would have been playing at the time. And here's a little note on that. The piano is still developing. As, as Beethoven's career unfolds, uh, it acquires more keys, and when it does, he uses them. Uh, the repetitive action is improved, and he takes advantage of that. So basically, the piano is evolving under his fingers, and that is, in Robert Levin's estimation, the sound of the piano he would have had in that, uh, in that particular time. Uh, the modern piano, by the way, the modern piano with its huge ability to project and sustain, that won't come about until around the middle of the 19th century when the piano acquires a metal frame, an iron frame inside, and you're able to put about two tons of tension on the strings. So that's why you get a more delicate sound with these earlier pianos. At any rate, I said he comes out to the concert hall and he makes himself known with piano concerto number two, which was actually the first one he wrote. It's just it was the second one published. That's how the first one became number two. Why the delay in publication? Well, Beethoven explained it. He said, it is good musical politics to keep the best concertos for yourself as long as possible. And that explains it. Uh, a little tangential note here. This is my tangent position. Chopin wrote two piano concertos. And just like these uh, first two of Beethoven, the numbers are reversed. The piece that is known as Chopin's Piano Concerto Number no. 1 is the second one he wrote, and vice versa. But different reason, not that he withheld it. Uh, the one he wrote first, he lost the orchestra part somewhere between Warsaw and Paris, he said. And apparently, even if you have a lot of friends helping you, that's a lot of ground to cover, so there was a delay there. Now back to Beethoven. We'll continue this chronological survey. The Beethoven Piano Concerto that is published first, the one that's called number one, which was actually the second he composed, a little of the opening orchestral exposition again, and then the soloist's first entrance.
So again, you have a much more delicate late 18th century style piano. Uh, Beethoven played that concerto in Prague in 1798. There was a composer there, a Czech composer named Tomaszek, and he described his reaction to Beethoven's playing. It had an extraordinary effect on me. I felt so shaken that for several days I could not bring myself to touch the piano. And it seems that he was so overwhelmed by Beethoven's playing that in a way he did not take full notice of the music itself. But then he heard Beethoven play twice more. And at that point, our Czech composer focused on the music. He said he admired the power and brilliance of Beethoven's playing, but he took issue with his daring deviations from one theme to another. Now, this concert, the third piano concerto, which is in Beethoven's key of Sturm und Drang, Storm and Stress. Now, Storm und Drang, a literary movement that hopped over into the musical realm, uh, accounting for the fact that Joseph Haydn, in the late 1760s and early 1770s, wrote a concentrated group of symphonies in minor keys. He only wrote 11 out of 104, but most of them are under the influence of Sturm und Drang. But it's more than just Storm und Drang. C minor is a special key. And people sometimes ask me, how does a composer choose the key in which a piece is written? And a lot of the times, it's merely for technical reasons. Uh, it has to do with the, with the sound of certain keys with certain instruments. It may have to do with the mechanical aspects of the instrument, what keys uh, are easier to navigate for a certain piece. Or it may be that there is a specific personal association. And when you mention Beethoven and C minor, you are talking about the key of the Fifth Symphony, you are talking about the key of the Pathétique Piano Sonata, and you're talking about the key of the Third Piano Concerto. Uh, and again, here is the opening of the exposition of the Third Concerto, and then a little of the opening of the solo part on a period piano once again. The third concerto was premiered in what would become one of Beethoven's famous marathon concerts of new works. He was known for giving you a lot for your money. This was Vienna, April 5th, 1803. The concert included the first performances of his second symphony, the Oratorio Christ on the Mount of Olives, the C minor piano concerto number three, a repeat performance of the first symphony, and a few additional planned works were dropped from the program at the last minute. But this was just amazing. You get a concerto, you get two symphonies, and you get an oratorio. You got your money's worth. Tickets no longer available. Uh, we also have an eyewitness account from Beethoven's page turner, who reported that many passages in the piano solo part were blank, and Beethoven was playing from memory. If you've ever turned pages for a pianist when everything's on the page, it's hard enough. Imagine this poor person trying to turn it when it wasn't on the page. Now, to approach Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, I'm going to uh, do a similar thing. I'm going to come at it from its predecessors. Now, the first symphony was premiered in 1800. He was, he was a latecomer to symphonies. You've got to recognize that uh, he had already made his mark in chamber music with the piano trios. He had already published his Opus II piano sonatas. String quartets were already in his bag, also uh, 
piano concertos. It wasn't until 1800 that he premiered his first symphony. And the first symphony has a, a first move with a slow introduction. And that is a clear finger pointing back into the 18th century, especially to Joseph Haydn. But we know that it's not Haydn speaking because of the wonderful ambiguity of the harmony that he uses at the beginning. That's not the key. That's not the key. That's not the key. He will eventually get there, but he's having fun. He's having fun with it. Uh, also, another interesting thing about that first symphony, he starts out by giving the woodwinds the first big part with the strings as a light accompaniment. This was a time when the woodwinds were finally being perfected and they could be trusted. And so he made use of them. Great composers make use of everything that is available. When something gets improved, Schumann with the horn with valves, they'll take advantage of it. It's all the new technology. And that is technology. At any rate, one, uh, one critic said this about the first symphony. He said, it's a really nice thing. The only fault I can find is that the wind instruments are used too much. He didn't quite get it. Uh, now, the, the, the third movement of a Viennese classical symphony, Haydn or Mozart, is a minuet. But Beethoven is going to increase the tempo of that third movement. He'll rename it scherzo. It's the Italian word for joke or jest. And in the first symphony, he still calls the movement minuet, but we still know where he's headed. a quick lesson in being a critic. Uh, lesson number one, actually I'll give you two lessons. Lesson number one is when a composer writes the first symphony you have to find every other uh, composer, previous composer, who has been imitated, emulated, or otherwise conjured up. When the composer offers you a second symphony, as a critic you're obliged to compare the first and second symphonies of course, and one critic who heard the first and the second performed on the same program, which made the comparison a bit easier, the first symphony is better than the later one because it is developed with a lightness and is less forced, while in the second, the striving for the new and striking are already apparent. Well, let's see what he might be talking about. First of all, like the first symphony, the second symphony has a slow introduction, which again connects it back to the 18th century and points a finger back to Haydn. But the third movement of the second symphony is our first true specimen of the real Beethoven symphonic scherzo. And it begins like this.
and the finale of the Second Symphony actually bewildered many of Beethoven's contemporaries. to uh, the more conservative folks in the crowd. One contemporary said, the second symphony is a gross monster, a pierced dragon which will not die, and even in losing its blood in the finale, wild with rage, still deals vain but furious blows with its tail, stiffened by the last agony. But there was one critic uh, who found the finale to be bizarre, harsh, and savage in his words, but he still had some very kind words to say about the work as a whole. He said there was such fire, such richness of new ideas, and an absolutely original use of these ideas. He said the symphony will always be heard with renewed pleasure when a thousand things that are today in fashion will have been long buried. And then, well, if we could only take that critic who said that in the second symphony the new and, the, and the, uh, the striving for the new and different were apparent, if we could only take him and sit him next to us for performance of the third symphony, the Eroica. <laughs> Definitely not a slow introduction, right into it. And this is the beginning of a work that will redefine the symphony. Now, the fifth gets the big, the big attention, but really it's the Eroica where the revolution starts. Beethoven deepens the dramatic power of the symphony. He expands his harmonic territory and the expressive use of harmony, and he enlarges the time scale. If you're going to go further afield harmonically, you're going to need time to get there, you're going to need time to get back. If you're going to explore your ideas more deeply, that's going to connect with this expansion and with the, the broadening of the, of the harmonic horizons. So a performance of the first symphony might last 25 minutes. Second symphony, a little over 30 minutes. The Eroica is at least 45 minutes. And you might imagine that a number of critics focused on the length. One of them said, the work has much to admire, but it's hard to keep up the admiration for three quarters of an hour. And he concluded by saying, if this symphony is not somehow abridged, it will fall into disuse. Beethoven did not abridge it, it did not fall into disuse. That critic I would like to bring to a concert with a Bruckner symphony and see what he thinks of that. Now, he has now opened the floodgates. He has redefined the symphony. He has expanded it and deepened in every possible way. So what is his next move? His next move is a fourth symphony that starts like this.
So the fourth symphony, that seems like a step backward. It has a slow introduction like the first and the second. Did he forget what he did with the Eroica? Did he forget who he is? No, he didn't. Because in fact, the fifth symphony would have been the fourth symphony, if not for Count Franz von Opersdorf. You all know Frank, yeah. Franz von Opersdorf, the Count had a court orchestra and he really liked Beethoven's second symphony. So although Beethoven had the fifth in progress, when he got a commission from the Count, he decided he would uh, please him a bit more if he wrote something like the second symphony. And so that's how you end up with a fourth symphony that Schumann referred to as the slender Greek maiden standing between the two Norse giants, the third and the fifth. Which of course brings us to the most famous four notes ever written. Symphonic name that tune. I can name that tune in uh, four notes. say a word about those four notes. What you call that is a motive, a musical motive. A, mu a musical motive is like a molecule. The notes are the atoms, you put them together, create a musical molecule. Uh, and a motive has two elements. It has a shape and it has a rhythm. So the shape as it's presented to us is, and of course the obvious rhythm, the second time it appears, it's the same shape, but it's been moved down, and actually, it's a little smaller. And then it will be all over the place, sometimes ascending, sometimes descending, sometimes repeated on the same note. The rhythm is the most important part of a motive. It is the most recognizable part of the motive. It allows me to walk in a room and say, hey, what symphony is this? I can play it on the side of the piano. Everybody knows it's Beethoven's fifth. Well, that rhythm, as you know, permeates the first movement, but how much does it permeate the first movement? Somebody who obviously had far too much time on his hands counted up how many times that rhythm occurs in the first movement, and the answer is 382 times. 382 times, and yet you never feel that he's stuck or run out of ideas because he knows how to create an amazing movement with a minimum of material, or at least a minimum of significant motivic material. Of course, there's a lot other that goes on there that we could get into, but we won't. Now, what can you say about Beethoven's Fifth? It's the kind of work that really leaves you speechless. Philip Hale was the program annotator for the Boston Symphony for many years in the early 20th century. Uh, he could write about anything, very articulate, but when he gets to the Fifth Symphony, he begins by borrowing, borrowing from the English writer Thomas de Quincey borrows what de Quincey said when speaking of Shakespeare. Thy works are not those of other men simply and merely great works of art, but are also like the phenomena of nature, like the sun and the sea, the stars and the flowers, the frost and the dew, hailstorm and thunder. And one of Beethoven's contemporaries, the author and composer E.T.A. Hoffmann, if you're familiar with Offenbach's Tales of Hoffmann. Hoffmann said in the Fifth Symphony, Beethoven moves us to terror, fear, horror, and pain, and awakens that endless longing which is the essence of romanticism. And for two centuries now, 
writers, critics of all sorts have struggled to come up with some sort of verbal description about what they hear embodied in this music. The French composer Berlioz was a great admirer of Beethoven, and when he discusses the fifth, he also draws parallels to Shakespeare. He says, the first movement is not the dark and voiceless sorrow of Romeo who learns of the death of Juliet. It is the terrible rage of Othello when he receives from Iago's mouth the poisonous slanders which persuade him of Desdemona's guilt. says, listen to this first movement, realize that it is above and beyond anything that had been previously produced in instrumental music, including Beethoven's Eroica Symphony. Now, we talked about that simple musical idea that pervades the first movement. Of course, it is a wonderful occurrence when in the third movement, we begin in a shadowy way, and then two horns show up with something that has to be immediately familiar. is not identical to the original version. The meter and rhythm are different, but the correspondence is clearly there. Three short notes, one long one. Now, it isn't unusual for work in the minor to make its way to the major. Countless chorales by J.S. Bach do exactly that. But in this case, uh, we get to the C major of the finale. And what's special is how Beethoven gets there and back to Philip Hale of the Boston Symphony notes, in all modern music there is no page more thrilling than that of the mysterious unearthly transition from the scherzo to the finale. something to know about this finale. Symphonies have been around for a long time at this point, but this is the first time that trombones appear in a symphony. Uh, up to now, they had generally belonged to church music. In Don Giovanni, Mozart brought them into the opera house and connected them with a statue who comes to life and scared a lot of people in the process. But now they finally make it into a symphony, and that supports that big brass outburst as we hit the, the brighter light of C major. I'm going to give the last word to Leonard Bernstein. This is what he writes in his 1960 book, The Joy of Music. 
Beethoven broke all the rules and turned out pieces of breathtaking rightness. Rightness, that's the word. When you get the feeling that whatever note succeeds the last is the only possible note that can rightly happen at that instant, in that context, then chances are you're listening to Beethoven. Melodies, fugues, rhythms, leave them to the Tchaikovsky's and Hindemith's and Ravel's. Our boy has the real goods, the stuff from heaven, the power to make you feel at the finish, something is right in the world. There is something that checks throughout, that follows its own law consistently, something we can trust that will never let us down. That is Bernstein on Beethoven. And before I say bye for now, I want to mention that this coming Wednesday is the latest in a series that I've been doing for the last seven seasons or so for the Philharmonic called Music 101. These are multimedia extravaganzas in Disney Hall on stage, uh, and uh, they start at 7.30, they run till 9, there's complimentary coffee afterwards, tickets are five bucks. Uh, and this time around, next Wednesday evening at 7.30, I'll be talking about the symphony in the 20th century, so I'd be delighted to see you there, and I thank you so much for coming tonight.